listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. On this week's episode, you'll hear Matt McDermott in conversation with Oakland-based experimental electronic music legend, Dax Pearson. I'm the only me there is. And so what comes from me is going to be unique. What comes from any of us should be unique because we're all different people and that was the impetus to keep working on music and it's a real emotional thing to be creative. Dax Pearson is a musician who has called the East Bay home for 20 years. He was co-founder of the bands Subtle and 13 and God, a touring member of hip-hop group themselves and an associate of the Anticon Collective. In 2005, the subtle tour vehicle encountered black ice and flipped over, leaving Dax with a spinal cord injury in the fifth and sixth vertebrae. The last 12 years have been spent exploring the possibilities that technology could offer. Since his individual fingers are now paralysed, Dax has switched to using a laptop controlled with iPad apps in order to create music. To mark the release of Dax Pearson's latest record, Nerve Bumps, A Queer Divine Disappointment, Matt and Dax talked about the quote from the American dancer Martha Graham and how it became the album's subtitle, Dax's relationship to Afrofuturism, and the music-making setup that he has intuitively adapted to. We join their conversation as they're catching up about California's local record shops reopening. I'm really excited for the new Amoeba to open as well here in Los Angeles. I, I feel like it's going to be in the next few weeks, actually. Which is oh, good. Amazing. Good. How's it going down there on Telegraph? Are you I aware of anything? I know that they're open. Uh, they're open something. They're open Thursdays through Sundays. Um, okay, got it. But I haven't been in since they've reopened. I haven't been leaving the house much, and I just had a long episode of being bedridden for about a year and a half, and so I have been focusing more on the transition from being in bed and laying down for so long to sitting up, being in my chair, holding my head up straight, things like that. Um, And it's taken me several weeks uh, to feel this comfortable in the chair. So now I can start working on a live set which I, I don't have right now, and I am not interested in doing the same set that I had been doing. You were, you were saying that for the past year and a half, it, it, it's been very difficult to sit up. During that time, you've released an incredible record. Um, you recently released your first studio album, 
in 15 years. Nerve Bumps, A Queer Divine Dissatisfaction. That came out in mid-February or late February on Rat Skin Records, as well as uh, Dark Entries, two venerable Bay Area institutions. Um, and it's it's such an accomplished record. Like it moves between left field dance music, uh, Gotham wave, um, ambient music. And it's, it's also a extremely personal journey, but, um, you know, at the risk of coming off glib, like when, when people pick up this record in the store and they put it on, um, there's a photo of your wheelchair on back, giving people some context clues as to what's going on. But if they slap it on, they're going to be like, this is just a dope record. Uh, but there is such an incredible journey behind uh, this work. And I know this is such a broad question, but can you tell us a bit about how this record came together? Yes. Uh, coincidentally, I decided to finally start working on a record after an, a previous episode of being in bed for almost a year and a half. And so I had all of this creative energy to want to just put out a record finally because I had been performing around town and the set that I had been performing for over a year um, had not been recorded and, you know, just documented like a specific snapshot of that moment. So I wanted to get that documented and work on some newer music. And I, it was my focus to work on something a bit more composed as, as opposed to more improvised. Um, and the record is a combination of those two practices. Um, initially, sometimes improvising and then going back and editing and arranging and, you know, composing in, in, as a way, in a way with editing, basically, if that makes any sense. It, it does. And, and, you know, a major incident in your life that is discussed on the record um, when you were part of the genreless project, Subtle, um, affiliated with Lex Records, there was a van accident in 2005, uh, which left you as a quadriplegic. And during that time, obviously, you've been struggling with being bedridden throughout that time, but you've also managed to make some incredible music and perform live. And when you speak about a mix of improvisation and composition, from what I understand, technology had to catch up a bit to allow you to make music. And can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So about, well, let's say 15 years ago, when I was researching how and what how, what I was going to use and how I was going to make music, I there were these um, durable medical equipment hand attachments 
that mm. I was already accustomed to in other um, occupational therapeutic ways. And so I was using those, and each one has a pointer. So I was using a traditional keyboard uh, MIDI controller, a MIDI, a mm. uh, small mini MIDI keyboard controller. And so I was able to play one note per limb and I was working that way and I was also struggling with working with Pro Tools which I was familiar with but its workflow required a lot more movements mm -hmm. and I was frustrated with that until my partner Chuck introduced me to Ableton as he had been using it since version two and, mm. and now they were on version five. And so um, he let me use his second license and then I just doubled down on learning the program. So much so that I purchased the program for three more of the subtle bandmates as the way for us to switch and start working that way. So when we did the final album, Exiting Arm, that is the one that is done with Ableton. Mm. And everything else, the the remix album that came before that has, uh, it's mostly Pro Tools and I was experimenting with Reason a little bit. So my contributions to the remix record were mostly via Reason and Pro Tools. Mm. Um, I feel like I didn't completely answer the process in creating the album. Um, if, it, if it's okay if I re reiterate some of that. Absolutely. Because I talked about just being bedridden. But I also... Since I was a little weaker than I had anticipated, I decided to hire two studio assistants to help me. And one of them was um, an Ableton instructor who was also a cellist who went to Berklee College of Music for a spell. And what apparently had been listening to Subtle when he was in college. And both of the assistants were, I guess, close to 20 years my junior. So, um, and the other one was a guy named Jay who uh, went, to, went to engineering school at SAE in Nashville. And so... Between those two, I was able to have someone else drive Ableton while I can be the backseat driver for some of the menial stuff mm. and leave the the creative efforts to myself. But any of the editing, I tried to save for him. And Jay was really instrumental in... Um, just being a second ear as far as 
the engineering aspects were going. So I had someone to check to see if, you know, it's like, do my levels sound okay to you? And things like that. And, um, yeah. So, but the creation just came from a lot of experimentation of sounds and just, um, you know, it's basically, I feel a lot of the time more like a music listener than an actual music creator. Mm. And since I am such a fan of music, you know, I think that Nerve Bumps in some ways is a love letter to some of that. Um, subconsciously, you know, um, in particular, because of all of the different music styles that are messed together, whereas that's just me, and I'm not really consciously trying to say, okay, now I'm going to do a hip-hop part or anything like that. It's just the way that I work at this point, and it comes from a history of being in different projects of different genres. And and to walk through a couple of them, um, you started out in San Diego in a group called Conglomerate that was almost like a post-rock, like uh, soul meets tortoise thing. Like Even though that's what I was into, the group was more like an alternative soul group, much in the way of D'Angelo and the Vanguard era. Mm -hmm. So we were a band out of time as far as being a San Diego band in the 90s, whereas all of our peers and colleagues were in Rocket from the Crypt, Drive Like Jehu, Three Mile Pilot. And we were signed to Cargo Records, but we were signed to the singer-songwriter mm. label, which was called Earth Music. So it was Earth Cargo Music. And um, so that's what the, the band did. It was, you know, lot, like live R&B with a, a hard edge to it. And, and that's coming from San Diego at the time, like San Diego has this sort of vibrant post-hardcore and, and screamo scene that, and you guys are like the outliers within that scene to some extent. Yes, and that was the part of the impetus to move to the Bay Area. So the whole band moved here together to uh, North Berkeley. And just how bands can be, we broke up <laughs> probably a year and a half later. One guy left, and then the magic of that group and what it was was never able we could never get it back in the same way so and then you had an advance from the record label but as money ran out this was also a time when it was a bit easier to live cheaply in the bay area like you eventually had to get jobs and and you worked along telegraph avenue at some extremely famous record stores there in berkeley yeah i was lucky 
to know um, a woman who I waited on at the uh, Cajun restaurant I worked at in San Diego. She happened to work and be the buyer for the hip-hop and R&B divisions for Leopold's when that was open. And she, when Leopold's closed, she moved to San Diego. But then she was missing the Bay, came back up here, became the R&B hip-hop buyer for Rasputin's. So when I moved up here, I looked her up, and she got me a job. And the rest is kind of history. I became a buyer eventually um, just based on my knowledge of uh, of music as a fan. And they decided to give me a chance and train me as a buyer when I had never been a buyer before. Your knowledge of music is obviously um, encyclopedic, but let's go to like your actual training as a musician at that time like like from what i understand you were playing keys and you were getting into like the boss doctor samples the classic 303 yeah so i got into the um the boss sp samplers when they first came out as the the doctor sample sp2 and 202 so it was really crude and um, I was already playing keyboard, but I had never really experimented with sampling until that point. So I'm a little bit of a late bloomer in that way. But that was because I decided uh, when my dad was buying me my first professional piece of gear, I wanted a synthesizer as opposed to a sampler because I wanted synthesizer sounds and I didn't it was just what I wanted at the time so um I just never got around to sampling until I could afford a sampler and so I, I mean I started experimenting with that and hearing newer music but my training isn't very formal at all well, I was always noodling on the piano if there, if there was one around. Mm. I mean, from age from age five, um, my mom and I were staying with an aunt for a while, and she had a piano. So that was a, a, a huge source of my entertainment, was just mm. playing that, discovering sounds and and key combinations and things like that but it was all just by ear and that's how I went through life until high school my dad offered me piano lessons and I took private piano lessons but it didn't go that well hmm. um, I had already been recording and making up my own songs in a way that learning to read music was taking a, a step back. Mm. And uh, when I went to, I did some junior college and took a piano class 
And I had the same experience. And I ended up dropping out of college because I had to work to pay rent. And I had just joined my first, like, gigging band when I was 20. And so I was making, at this point, like in the 90s, early 90s, I was making music with my roommate and we were doing kind of like, we were basically doing a, a Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis or Babyface, uh, L.A. Reed type of production uh, with a with a lead vocalist. And so we were sequencing between our two keyboards and drum machines and doing music like that, which he just sent me. And it sounds like vaporwave sample <laughs> sources. I mean, you know, be, just because it's those sounds and those presets. So it's like, wow. I mean, I just had him send it to me because I wanted to experiment with it. <laughs> Because it's music that's never been released, and it's like yeah. five songs, and so I wanted to see if there would be some interesting thing I could get out of it, some little weird EP. Um, but after a while, I got sick of making music like that, and I wanted to play in a live group. And um, a roommate of mine, roommate, classmate, of mine who played sax on ended up playing sax on the conglomerate LP had just come back from Berkeley College of Music and he was starting to play with uh, a band called Bicycle Thieves for a while and uh, he told me they were looking for a keyboardist and so that was like my first indie rock band but all, they were out of time. We were making music like, like the lead singer was into music like the Smiths and Pixies and things like that, you know, college alternative rock. And so that's what we were doing, but they were original songs. But I was enjoying it, and I was enjoying the experience of playing in a band. Um a gigging band as an adult. I mean, I had another group with some friends from high school before the Jam and Lewis era, but, um, you know, it's, I mean, I could go really deep with this. I don't know if it's all that interesting. I mean, I find it fascinating, but I, I think that what we're hearing is that, like, yeah, you were listening to the Smiths, the Pixies, uh, Prince, you were playing in a neo-soul group, you you were interested in R&B production, Jam and Lewis, and then you get to San Francisco. Craftwork and Art of Noise were also part of that. Definitely. And then you get, you get to San Francisco, you're like in your mid, or you get to the Bay Area, you get to Berkeley, you're in your mid-20s, and uh, you start working at record stores because people understand from from this disparate group of influences that you know what's up basically and and you're starting to buy records right and then you meet Adam Drucker aka Dose 1 at 
amoeba and you decide to start making music together and um, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you can explain a little bit about who Dose One is and what Anticon is. Sure. Dose One is Adam Drucker and he is an MC, uh, music producer, uh, visual artist, video game developer now. And uh, he is one of the founding members of the Anticon Collective that started in the late 90s of um, different MCs that were from different parts of the country but had met online and were starting to collaborate. And they um, relocated to the Bay Area because the collectives that influenced them to create a collective are based out of here. And that was the uh, Soul Sides Quantum Collective, which includes DJ Shadow and Latirix and Black Blacklicious. And um, the Hieroglyphics Collective with Del the Homo Sapien and um, Souls of Mischief and the bigger group that I can't remember right now. But, um, and so yes, I did meet them. I met dose in 98 and i had heard some of the anticon music at my buddy's house who happened to be the general manager of rasputin's but i was already at amoeba and i was at his house and he was playing a lot of their music for me and um i went nuts and went to all the record stores to find whatever I could the next day. And I was able to hear that the guys were using the Dr. Sample 202 in their production. And I immediately felt an affinity for what they were doing. And I was really attracted to Adam's voice and wanted to work with him um and i felt like we could make something new and original together and ultimately my friends got together with his friends and um all of a sudden there were live musicians playing with anticon members and you know that extended to uh members of subtle playing with um, playing on recordings of of Nostoms and of aliases and of Ys. I mean, they, um, the cellist has played on a few of those. And, and Jordan, the drummer of Subtle, was also a touring member of uh, Cloud Dead. So it became really incestuous. And we were able to hone our live skills uh, during that that era in the Bay Area. And and subtle was conceived as a genreless group to some extent. 
it was conceived as a yeah i mean we didn't talk about specific genre and the group came about because my good buddy and roommate at the time a singer songwriter bart davenport um i had been playing with him for a, a year well i that's who i played with after conglomerate broke up i'm we the house broke up as well and i became roommates with him and a KALX DJ by the name of Kitty. And um, so I started playing with Bart. Jordan joined. And a guy by the name of Mike Martinez, who used to run a label called Deluxe Records, and put out a couple of records as a group called Electric Birds, was playing guitar in that group. And we were doing a residency up here. And that's what was going on while and at the same time that I had met Adam. Um, there was there was something I meant to say, and I lost track of what it was. Oh, no worries. This is such like a fascinating musical history. Um, but how would you describe subtle sound oh, and the way? Yeah, and the way it was received on those tours, those early tours and records. Well, I mean, uh, we the way that we got together was by um, an open mic, an invitational open mic, and we got together and improv once, and um, the members were picked of the group based on who they were and what they played. And so I don't think there was a goal of sound when we got together. I just knew it would be interesting. But, I mean, I was influenced by the production of the way that Can worked with editing and improv. And I knew we could do that. and But also, we worked in a way where different producers would produce a short demo, and then we would all work on that together and arrange it as a, as a group. Mm. But I would say that the music is heavily, inf well, a lot of this heat influence, interestingly enough, and... Um, it's really hard to say because the influences come from our individual influences and the age ranges between in that group were in the 30 well mid 20s to mid 40s when we when we became a group so yeah. so there's the influence that Adam and Jell are having from Things like Bone Thugs and Harmony and uh, I'm trying to think of all the other influences of, of his. Um, I'll just say all of their hip hop, traditional hip hop influences like Tribe Called Quest and things like that, yeah. Gangstar, um, and also some of the more underground things like Atmosphere, 
who they were big fans of. Um, and so, and MF Doom, I, sh- I can't uh, skip him because I know he was a big influence on all of them. Um, and then Alex and I, who are 80s babies, have all of those references. And he is more gothic and new wave, and he's the cellist. So there's that. And then we had an older guy. I should, shouldn't say older, but he was 10 years my senior uh, named Marty, who also worked at Amoeba. There were four of us at one time that worked there. And Marty was an additional keyboardist, but also played any of the horns that you hear. And his, so his references, I mean, you know, he was in the Steely Dan and um, he was the, he maintained the electronica section at Amoeba and he was into a lot of down tempo stuff. And so we were all over the place and I, that's what I was going for or that's what I heard in my head was just a mix of whatever and I I didn't know what it was going to sound like. N- none of us knew what it would sound like until we were doing it. So I think that's the best way I can answer that is that there was no set sonic goal. Mm. And and around this time like as we're starting to get into like the very early 2000s and subtle is is rock and like i get the impression that you knew about all the electronic music that record people know about whether it's ashra or harmonia or manual gotchings solo work e2 e4 mm-hmm. but 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 like that's kind of like that early 2000s period is when you start to get a bit more into like traditional house and techno for yeah personally i get more into uh the the jungle drum and bass thing uh thanks to the square pushers first lp the the import one um and aphex twins presence had already been there but I was listening to more of that. I was lis- listening to more college radio. And so there were, at the time, there were some really special DJs. There always are, but um, at this time, Drew from Atmos was a DJ there because he was, he was also going to school at UC Berkeley before he became a professor at Johns, Hop- Johns Hopkins. And uh, an artist by the name of Sutek um, was also a DJ there. Um, Sean Ronaldo, who has become quite the influencer, Sean was playing. Sean was the only individual playing disco at that time, hmm. and everybody was just like, "Stop." <laughs> you know, it was funny because he was just ahead of his time. But he was playing 
90% disco on every all of his shows. And that's something that the Berkeley crowd wasn't accustomed to yet, as, as much of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a real hotbed of of being turned on to electronic music, not to mention Mills College's graduate program. And so people like Blevin, Blectum from Blectum, which is a, a electronic duo from the time, they were students there and they that's how they accidentally became a duo, um, was trying to segue between sets at a performance. And uh, you know, one of my buddies had graduated from there and was working at Amoeba and became one of the electronic buyers as well. So there's all of this influence coming at me at the same time. And I'm just like a sponge and I just absorb it all. But I don't profess to be an expert of any specific genre because I am so all over the place. Yeah. I, I mean, the only one that I would say would be like the Thrill Jockey era and the Tortoise and all of their um, branches. Like, yeah. I, I know all that for sure. Yeah. Um, and all of the like Gaster del Sol related stuff, which is how I got turned on to, to Tortoise was through Gaster del Sol. Gaster del Sol. Um, but I wasn't necessarily making that music yet. You know? Yeah. And and just like quick shout out to Sean Renato and, and the work he did with the Accelerator magazine years later that kind of uh, catalyzed a lot of energy that was going on in San Francisco at the time with labels like Tiger Beat 6 and producers like Kit Clayton. Um yes. Really a fascinating scene, and uh, Sutek, who Dax mentions, people listening might know his techno project, R. Rose, as well. Like, this this energy continues into the present, and you said at the time you were interested, you were taking in everything. Um, at some point, like, this, this major accident, which is such a defining moment in your life, like... Uh, changes the way you live and changes the way you make music and maybe pushes you more in this direction where in the way that Prince played every instrument on his first record, you're like, I have to figure out how to do this shit too. Yeah. And, um, interestingly, all of that other time that I was playing music before my injury, I had only owned and used a computer for music for about a year or something, maybe two, but about a year. So I couldn't afford the equipment to make the music that, you know, you a lot of that you need a computer or you need ex, a certain hardware, and there wasn't things like the iPad yet. So um, a lot of my trajectory, like it is for a lot of disenfranchised 
hyphenated folks. Uh, it was more challenging for me to get the equipment to make the music that I wanted to make, you know, just like it was, you know, for people making hip hop back in the day and learned how to sample. Um, I, I, so it wasn't until I was touring with themselves that we were, I was able to get a laptop and a, Pro Tools inbox, and that's when all of us did. We weren't using computers before that. We were using hard disk recorders, VS eight eighties, the Roland hard disk recorder, and I was still using a four track. Like you spoke about, how even though you were taking in all this music, it was a while before you like made an attempt to make electronic music, and perhaps that was related to this this accident that was like a defining moment in terms of like changing the way you lived and made music required you to like really get into the machine. Yes, it was, it was evident after subtle broke up, especially that I was going to be working mostly solo. So I was going to figure out, I had to figure out a way how that worked. You know, I mean, I was already a keyboardist and, playing samplers so i was already an electronic musician per se but um i had not had much output as a solo artist making electronic music um so that all came after the injury and um having more funds in order to be able to get a computer and and also do a lot of experimenting with buying equipment. So it was a lot of that. Buying equipment, discovering it doesn't work, selling equipment, reading. Um it was it was a lot of work and but it was well no, it was a lot of work and it was kind of frustrating that some of the technology had not existed yet. Mm. Uh, like at the time, I was wishing that there was some kind of program that could translate audio to MIDI. Um, and there are now several programs, and including Ableton does that. Um, same with uh, being able to beatbox and making that uh, MIDI notes to trigger a drum machine. So those are ways that have uh, become available that were more crude 15 years ago. And when the touchscreens came out, that really became uh, a game changer for me. When the iPhone and the, the iPad came out, what we're talking about here, uh, you know, you've always been like fascinated with music and fascinated with sounds. When you say that on those Anticom records, you were hearing the Boss SP202, like this, this machine has like very specific effects that sound like a certain way. They're so good. Um, and you're walking through this period of being like, what am I going to make music with? But 
you know, you experienced this this accident that was, uh, you know, so unimaginable to some extent. And can can you walk us through what happened in two thousand five on tour, and then the aftermath, like even being able to to live, much less make music. This is something that you've addressed very head on in your music with tracks like A Snap of the Neck and Treading Water um, that walk through that process. But can, but can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, well, just to give some history and context, Subtle was on tour in 2005. Uh, it was the beginning of our tour. And actually, when I saw the tour itinerary, I saw that we it was winter, and I saw that we were do, doing going around the country in a clockwise fashion, going north and then get going across to the east. And normally with that type of, with that season, it would have made more sense to go counterclockwise. Yeah. Um, to try to miss that winter. But, well, that's, that's what the tour was. So I was a little apprehensive about that at the beginning of the tour. So um, we play a few shows. We play Oregon and Seattle. We play a really great and fun show in Denver. And uh, then we had a drive day the next day. So uh, we, we drive. And by the time we're driving on the I-80 and we have a hotel in uh, Boise, Idaho. So we're not too far from there, and we're encountering black ice, which is frozen water on the highway, but it doesn't look like ice. It just looks like the highway. So um, in this stretch of the road, we were going 20 miles an hour. We slowed down. Um, but we still lost control, and the sound guy, roadie guy, Patrick, drove off into the the fields to the right, and we were okay until our trailer was not okay, and it turned, it wanted to flip over, and it jackknifed us over, and then the seat that I was in was not latched to the floor anymore. Apparently it had become unlatched. And so that propelled me directly into the ceiling. And I was suffocating. Oh my God. So I was forced, I found out, figured out later that I actually broke my neck in order to breathe. Because I had to, I was pinned down here on my shoulders, so I had to bring my neck back, and I, it was. I heard the cracking, but I, 
I didn't, it didn't register to me that it was my poems. I just had to breathe. I didn't have a choice. So, um, so after I was able to breathe, I was able to communicate with the guys and they were all out of the van by that point. And so they were worried, trying to figure out what to do. And there were other accidents, so it wasn't just us. Um, Finally, somebody came and, I I don't know, somebody called 911 and an ambulance came and I was uh, chopper flighted to another hospital that um, had more advanced equipment um, to take care of spinal cord injury. So they flew me to Creighton Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was there for some weeks. And then I was flown to Houston Hobby Airport and to um, Houston Tier Hospital, Tier Rehabilitation Hospital, in order to learn how to live as... Uh, someone with quadriplegia and uh, I was there and the reason I went to Houston was because my mother lived in the area at the time so she was able to be there for a lot of my therapy and learn things along with me that I needed help with and uh, but they they the rehabilitation center was great they really taught one how to live with their injury and live independently if need be, if they could. So um, I had two different one-month inpatient stays there and stayed at my mom's house in Texas City during the breaks. So I was in... I was away, I should say, I was away from the Bay Area from the tour for eight months. And I got back December 2005. But during this time, is I also became romantically linked at the same time. And this was when you were meant to see Chuck on that tour, correct? Yeah. Yes, I was being a dog. He wasn't the only person I was trying to meet. <laughs> but it was the first time I'd ever had that opportunity as a as a musician. You know, I'd always seen, like, my heterosexual roommates, or not roommates, bandmates, be able to explore like that. But it was never, had never been an option for me. But it didn't end up happening until... And then Chuck and I fell in love with each other before we actually met in person. Chuck was communicating with you when you were in Texas. Yes, that's correct. And we started... First, he was just sending flowers and things like that and cards while I was in rehab. And I didn't have much energy to reach out to someone I didn't know very well yet. And uh, so I was just staying, you know, in communication with my close friends and family. 
it wasn't until after I got out of rehab the first time and I had more time that I called him. Hmm. And then we started one of the, you know, we started a phone relationship, calling each other and talking on the phone for at least two hours a day. And then we eventually, he flew to Texas and stayed with me. And the rest is history. I, I believe that on the back of nerve bumps, you, you state that uh, Charles' uh, full name is Charles Nenny. Yes. Was involved in the conception of the record. And... Uh, the uh, I'll say... Well, go ahead and ask your question. I'm sorry. Well, I, I know that, uh, you know, the subtitle for the record, A Queer Divine Dissatisfaction, um, is... A quote from the dancer Martha Graham that um, that Chuck introduced you to, and I, I I would like to just read that because there there are a few things that I'd like to comment on about this fairly amazing quote, which from what I understand was part of an interview that happened after the premiere of Oklahoma, and. Uh, Ms. Graham is speaking about the artistic process, and she says, there is only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Like, how did that resonate with you? It resonated with me... Uh... Uh, it made me, it made, it became my mantra, basically, in order to continue working on the album at a time where I was feeling basically unconfident and um, uninspired, but wanting to work you know i was trying to make a record and um i was unsure about a lot of things and i we chuck and i were talk we talk a lot about our process and and our challenges and so chuck introduced that quote to me as a way well, he was using it, and he used it in an, a gallery show. Uh, and uh, so it was just a quote that was floating around in the house for a while. But um, it basically um, made me feel like the work that I'm doing is important. Because I'm the only me there is. Mm. And so what comes from me is going to be unique. What comes from any of us should be unique because we're all different people. And that is was the impetus to keep working on music and thinking about it in the larger scope of maybe I'm not going to be here much longer. And so 
Um, and I want to be remembered after I'm not here. And making music is a way of living beyond death. Um, but it was just also a way for me to to work on music every day. Because sometimes when you don't feel like it, um, you know, it could... It's a real emotional thing to be creative. And um, so I just found it a way to move on and move along. And I just wasn't necessarily, I wasn't happy with all of the music I was making at the time that I was making it. But it was what I could do at the time. And so for me, I was like, well, this is the absolute best I can do right now. And I think that's all, that's what matters about making a record is one doing the best that they could anytime they're working on it. Um, so, it, it, the quote gives, gives me energy, you know, when, they, when it says, you know, that, it's, that it makes you feel more alive than the others. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're making stuff, you feel invigorated sometimes, especially upon completion of something, if you feel like you've uh, broken some personal ground, which I feel like I did um, working on this record. And particularly, I felt like that specifically with a tune called Isolate the Pain, which is uh, maybe the fourth track on the album, now that I'm thinking about it. it about like isolate the pain that became this like kind of personal touchstone um it came together really quickly and um i don't know i think it was um the way that it came together was somewhat effortless but when i hear it i, I it's definitely an advancement in the music that I was making before, I feel. But I have to say that the music I was working on for Nerve Bumps, the uh, live in Oakland is happening at the same time, sort of, sort of right? Because I'm performing. Yeah. Um, so, for me, I slay the pain is 
used well initially was my favorite to listen to um the way that the midsection is with all of the cut drums and the piano and the my my voice is the the drone and basically i put two different songs together and that's where that where the piano starts jumping into that second part that's because that's a was a completely different mm-hmm. song and so the arrangement of that song essentially came together in the day and i don't usually work that fast and you know so for me it was a personal accomplishment yeah okay yeah and so and i didn't always feel that when working on the music I probably would have felt that with adhesion had I not been working on it so long. Let, let's talk about time. And following 2005, you're out of the Bay for eight months. You fall in love. You learn to have a new life. You have a legal battle with an auto company that you thankfully prevailed in which which allows you to live um that's all before even thinking about making music at all and eventually but i was thinking about it so so you were thinking that whole time you were preoccupied with how you were going to make music again yeah that was the thing that was driving me i was just like i'm gonna make music again i can't wait to get to it and um my bandmates were really supportive in that by continuing to work and um, me sending them demos I was working on and them using those. So they were still incorporating me into For Hero for Fool. Um, but yeah, I was during that whole time. Oh, and I have to say, I was working on some music for a B movie um, before I went on the tour and I was to complete the music while on tour and then the accident happened. So since I had my computer with me, Jordan, the, the, uh, one of the main members of, um, everything subtle <laughs> 13 and god conglomerate um he and his wife came to visit and the reason the main reason he came was to help me finish the soundtrack so mm. um i was able to we were able to look at the computer in the hospital and i would give him directions and then he would go go to the hotel that night and work on it and wow. so he helped me complete that um he is also the person that i mixed nerve bumps with um and so that was also happening so i was already thinking about music because yeah. of because of that soundtrack um and i was thinking a lot about robert wyatt yes. and his accomplishments um, but I, you know, he made a record within a year after his injury. 
but he is paraplegic, so he still had the use of his fingers and hands. The uh, the inimitable Robert Wyatt of Soft Machine and a lot of other projects made a record called Rock Bottom. Yes, that was specifically about his experience with the diving accident. Um that also left him in a wheelchair. Like, I, I guess I never thought about that comparison here, but is, is nerve bumps your rock bottom? I don't know. I think maybe that's something that I'm not able to say. Um, because there's things about live in Oakland that could be my rock bottom as well. Things like treading water which is um, another track like I've never made before. Um, but that was an important track for me to make as I was really angry with that doctor. And um, I just needed a way to share the absurdity of what he told me about. You know, it was... It was... A, it was a meeting at UCSF Spine Center and I had to gather all of this medical all of these medical records from years and it was a 15 minute appointment I mean that was essentially the whole appointment is what you hear and you know for him to conclude and say just keep treading water because my vertebrae are going to fuse together and while it's happening i'm going to be in more pain but when it stops fusing i'll be in less pain but i won't have as much range of movement and i'm like come on i mean basically and he's like well we know you don't want to do invasive surgery right and i'm like that's right so this is what we have to, we can do so I mean, maybe it isn't his fault that these are my only options, but it was his way of of bringing levity to something that maybe shouldn't happen. Absolutely. And and to, to speak a bit about the track, this is off of a solo live record, um, live in Oakland, and... You're right, that record might even be more visceral in addressing what you've been going through. And this specific track, Treading Water, is built off of a sample of a conversation that's happening at the doctor's office. And you're absolutely right. The doctor is, as you said, too too casual in his approach to telling you something that's going to affect the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and yeah. So it's like, you know, I understand that he's a doctor, so it's something he does every day. It's like, you know, putting fries and a burger in a bag every day. You know, it's like, so he, it's not, he doesn't have the bedside manner that he should have because he's, probably doesn't want to be there and he wants to get back to doing whatever research he's doing or whatever you know I that's the vibe that I got and there was another doctor there who w 
was the one that told her, told me that I can contact her if I need anything. So, mm. um, but it was just my way of of processing some bad news and processing that I have arthritis in my neck and it's always going to be that way and I have to support my head with my arm sometimes or most of the time. Um, so, but the, all because of the arthritis and the scoliosis, uh, my range and abilities have decreased. And so my approach to live music is changing. It's changing all the time. Um, so much so that sometimes I use an Apple Pencil to mm. to change the knobs on the iPad or whatever because they're so small. Um, but yeah, uh, other the other tracks that are on live in Oakland, like A Snap of the Neck, um, the music, the background stuff on Treading Water is all durable medical equipment. And, and just to, like, speak, first of all, like, the personal aspects of the record, a, a song like A Snap of the Neck, a song like Treading Water, and then on Nerve Bumps, a record like For the Angels that is dedicated to uh, the dancers and musicians and artists and who died in the ghost ship fire. That's um, right. It's a remarkably personal record, and and to hear that you've used the sounds of like your chair and medical equipment, uh, it, it makes it even more so. Um, but just to step back, let me talk about like stylistically this record. Um, For the Angels is is more of like an acid track. Um, there are several tracks like Four Two Twenty Four off of Nerve Bumps and Memory off of. Uh, off of live in Oakland that kind of remind me of, of like the quasi liturgical music that begins like Prince's let's go crazy mixed with maybe like mm. mixed with maybe like the long ambient intro of like tones on tails, like rain or something like that. Like, like I can't believe that you just mentioned tones on tail rain. That is one of my favorite songs of all time. <laughs> mine too mine too i can't i just have to listen to it all the time i mean you know not every day but it's one of those songs um i thought i think they were a great band because they were like a gothic dub electronica band and they really are overlooked in my opinion yeah i like them more than Bauhaus or love and rockets so um but uh yeah those tracks are definitely directly speak to uh, just memories of the accident and all, like two, 4 24 is the actual date of the accident, February I, I 24th. I figured as much. I couldn't confirm that online, but I figured that's what it meant. Yeah. And coincidentally, Nerve Bumps came out on the 26th of February. I saw that. Yeah. So it's the 16th anniversary already um yeah so that's what those two tracks are about and you know i'm always i'm just challenging myself to do 
to create different moods, you know, not everything in the same tempo or the same vibe. And um, so in those moments, that's that's just what I was feeling. Simple as that. You know, I, I go a lot by feel and um, influence of sound or preset, which I was embarrassed to say five months ago until I read that that's what drove Prince was, yeah. you know, he would just switch to a a preset, like the harpsichord preset on a keyboard, and that's where Manic Monday comes from. That's that. So I'm I'm influenced uh, similar to that, where I, you know, I'll hear a sound, and that'll in, influence me to go a certain direction, and you know that might not be the most scientific, but that's what I do a lot of the time. It's just feel and tones of sounds and putting those together in a pleasing way, you know? And, and you know, maybe more conceptually, like when you think about like the, this might be a stretch, I don't know. But when you think about like Kraftwerk's concept of like the man-machine, where you're like, yeah, I make electronic music because so much of what I do is reliant on technology to some extent. Well, I, you know, sometimes I do feel like a cyborg because I do, <laughs> I mean, I do have this computerized medicine pump that's in my torso that's delivering uh, anti-spasm medicine to my spine. So, so in some ways I do feel like that. And, um, you know, and I do think about Afrofuturism type things a lot as well. And so I try to get that all in the music. And, but, you know, I'm not a lyricist, so um, it's not always easy for people to hear, you know, that I'm a fan of, of Afrofuturism uh science fiction, things like that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that my music has the same rigidness as, as Kraftwerk does. And I think that it sounds a little bit more played. Yeah, in parts, definitely. in parts. I mean, some of it is obviously, you know, like For the Angels is a real driving sequence track. But in other areas, it's more about the illusion of playing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I say illusion because I'm not playing chords with all my fingers. So it's a lot of... <laughs> I was saying this during production sometimes. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, to make it sound like, you know, it was recorded live or anything, just live in the studio. 
because it is mixed more like an indie rock record or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a lot of illusion because it's mixed in the box. It's not like we're using a lot of outboard equipment. And that's, that's, I think that's something that I take pride in is that I don't necessarily need to interface with hardware instruments or modular synths to create something um, new and to try to create something original. And something that feels live and has the humanity of a live recording where it's not purely sequenced. And that, that certainly comes across on nerve bumps. And one of the things you said, um, you, you said this twice throughout the conversation, specifically speaking about um, having trouble buying gear like back in the day, like having trouble getting a laptop to make music on it and, and, and speaking about how like lots of uh, marginalized or hyphenated people have, have the same issue. And then you spoke just in the past couple minutes about like your interest in Afrofuturism. And, and I, I think that one of the things you've said is, is like uh, there's a certain amount of like social responsibility to excelling in your craft and putting out records at this point, like as somebody who is like black, gay, and disabled. Yes, it's really important to me. And, um, you know, not that I make any sort of verbal statements about all of that in the, in the music. I hope that it translates in, in the music and in the artwork in any way possible you know like yeah i just it's important for me that people understand all of that about me when they're listening to the music i mean it's i mean but i it's really important for me for people to just enjoy the music as well it's not just about look what I did, you know, make me a poster boy. It's not; it doesn't have anything to do with that. I, I, I said this earlier in the conversation. The first thing I said was, "It's an amazing record," and I know that you want it to be appreciated as an amazing record. Like you, yeah. and if people want to dive into your personal history, if people want to figure out who you are, it it will work on these levels as well, but it's for people who, who dig music. If somebody needs to be able to uh, listen to it blind as well. Absolutely. And I, I realize that it takes, it's a grower for some people. It takes a few listens. Um, but I'm accustomed to that. I mean, that's how subtle was. A lot of people could not get that in the first listen because it's, it's maximalist, really. Um, but, you know, both Subtle and my work have that. But I thought about Subtle a lot when I was working on the solo stuff. And and for me, in my head, it sounded similar. It sounded like a natural progression. I, I, I agree. Um, with one 
crucial difference in it being like it's clearly your voice here rather right. than like uh, yeah um i wanted to speak about one more thing like and perhaps wrap this up i, I appreciate you taking time here um to go back to the quote that inspired the album the martha graham quote once again, there is only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Um, as I said, that's part of a conversation that Grandma Dancer is having. And I understand that like one of the things that you've taken from this conversation, uh, specifically when she says, when I see my work, I take for granted what other people value in it. I see, or this is what the other person was saying. Um, and she was talking about artistic satisfaction and how you basically have to get in there and do work every single day. And that seems to be like what you've taken from it. And as somebody who has been bedridden for 18 months, you're like, I could still work. I'm still working through these musical concepts in my mind. Can you, can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm always thinking about music. I'm always thinking about process um, and new ways of working. Um, that's something that I, even if I have a workflow, there's always something to learn. And since I have been working more, on the iPad itself and learning how to uh, make a whole set or a whole song on the iPad has been uh, a preoccupation of mine for a few years. And uh, Live in Oakland is um, proof of that because that whole side is done on a $300 iPad. Um, and so uh, I have been really obsessed with the possibilities of using iOS devices as your main rig. And and I think that's because I'm preparing for a future where I, I don't want to use computer and I want to use, it's the closest I can get to using hardware or having a hardware set or whatever. How do you continue to work when lifting your head is difficult? I yeah. do a lot of, like, I might read a lot. Like, you know, I might read more articles in my whole, like, backlog of Wire magazines. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm... I'm going to sites like Resident Advisor and Pitchfork and just paying attention to what is being released. I'm also paying attention to any new music technologies that um, might help me or might help my workflow. And so I, I go to a lot of forums and I am able to work on music in bed when I'm sitting up. I have a, a way where I basically have a, a a portable rig where I use the this iPad Pro and uh, 
um, I have it connected to a speaker that has a, a flat EQ, so I can use, I can kind of trust it as a monitor. Mm. And um, so I'm able to still do some uh, experimentation and reading and, and learning new apps um, because on what I'm using on the computer, it's called, I mean, on the iPad is a program called AUM, and it lets you use one app to control another app or use an effects app, like a reverb app, after a synthesizer app so it makes all of those separate apps that are on one's device more usable because it's basically a mixer um and it records so um those are the things i do to work when i'm not as able to be in the studio and I did have to spend an extended amount of time on my side. So um, I, I'm not able to work on the iPad on those times, but I'm able to read yeah. or watch things. So I, I also did a lot of binging. Yeah, yeah. You know. I I mean, you know, your music and your music taken on its own and your story is so inspiring. Uh, and, you know, check out the album. The album is called Nerve Bumps, A Queer Divine Dissatisfaction. Um, you know, and it's clear that you're never really treading water, no matter what. And it, it's it's a real inspiration. Thank you. I hope that I can continue to work and 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 make good music. You know, it's it's like I was saying with my um, physical abilities decreasing. It's something that I I'm, I feel like I really need to do um, every day. Some something. And I, I guess like we're all running out of time to some extent as well. That's true. I mean, nobody's immortal. Well, I think that your legacy will will uh, will be the music that you've recorded, and thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you for for having me. I know that I kind of went off the beaten path quite a bit. So did I. That's the best thing about these things. Um, we are speaking with Dax Pearson. He's our latest guest on the RA Exchange. Uh, Mr. Pearson is an amazing Oakland musician. Thank you so much for taking time, Dax. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Matt McDermott and Dax Pearson. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, our full archive is available for you to take in. And if you find something you love, please leave us a review as it does help get our stories to more ears.